Welcome to Woolful, a podcast for fiber folk. I'm excited to share with you some incredible people I've had the opportunity to talk to in this community we love so much. From shearers and shepherds to knitters and shop owners, here's where you get to listen to a little part of their fiber journey. I wanted to thank one of our sponsors of this week's episode, Tin Can Knits. Alexa and Emily have created several endearing collections of modern, clearly written patterns that feature accessories and garments, each size for babies all the way up to 4XL. I really love their Road Trip and Max and Bodie's wardrobe collections and hope to make the flyaway blanket this fall. They'll be releasing the final pattern of the Max and Bodie wardrobe collection on June 11th, so make sure to find this and their other collections on Ravelry. And to keep up with all the going-ons, visit TinCanNits.com. Today we get to meet a special woman, Hannah Lee Bisi, whose passion has led her to dive into the world of fiber, raising a herd of alpacas, and creating her yarn, Hinterland. I've had the pleasure of getting to know Hannah Lee since before the podcast launched, when she reached out to share what she's been up to, raising alpacas in British Columbia and creating yarn from her fiber, and fiber she sourced from other North American farms. As I learned more about what she was up to, I was moved and asked Hannah Lee if she'd be interested in selling me her yarn so that I could offer it in the Woolful Mercantile. What a special thing it is to create something from a yarn that was dreamed up by a friend, a woman whose heart is so kind and her determination so strong to help the Canadian fiber industry. You can find Hannah Lee at hinterlandfarm.ca and on Instagram at hinterland underscore textiles. And with that, here's Hannah Lee. Well, I started the whole Hinterland uh, yarn company that I've, it, it's all really new. And I would say I only really started it in September of this past year. And it, it was started because I had a, a large amount of fiber and I didn't really know. I actually got into the animals kind of by accident in a way because I was working mostly with wool and with different kinds of sheep and, you know, hand spinning and uh, weaving and uh, needle felting. I was thinking about buying a, buying a couple of sheep. That how it's, that's kind of how it started. And I um, was doing a little bit of research and thinking about what kind of uh, sheep I would want. And in, the, in my research, I found some alpacas and the farm was uh, a retirement sale and they had all of these pretty much babies. Like they, they were between the ages of two and four year old alpacas. They were selling uh, for really, really reasonable, a reasonable price. So I, I emailed them and went out and looked and just fell in love with them like right away. And they're just such amazing little animals and these their little personalities and every everyone is is different and they they love being around people and follow you around it's like really really sweet and then to top it off they have this beautiful fiber so that's originally how i got into it and then just discovered i couldn't use all of the fiber myself because well i originally only bought six and then even just the six of them i was i was maybe using like one fleece a year like just in the things that I was making and I just couldn't keep up to what they were producing. So I started doing some research on, on mills and getting like yarn manufactured and, and got uh, samples from mills all over Canada and even some in the US. 
just to see exactly like what I wanted and what what kind of combination or blend I was looking at because I still really love to knit with with wool and wool blends and um, wool wool and alpaca blends. So that's kind of where I where I went with my yarn and why it's you know majority is actually wool in in the yarn that I make, and it's but an important uh, part in my search for finding the right blend and the right type of of wool to use was uh, that they all were Canadian sourced. So that was a big a big part of and also a big part of like what was what were my limitations on what I like who was farming what and a lot of little like you know tiny little farms across the country and that's kind of how how hinterland yarn started how I even got into it and it's, so it's all fairly new but I would say I've always you know had a love of animals and husbandry and I grew up with horses so it's so I had that kind of nature already and, and my grandparents owned a farm and we used to spend every summer there when I was growing up and the whole concept of like you know, being self-sustaining was always really appealing to me, even if I didn't really know it at the time when I was growing up. Yeah, and actually, another another kind of aspect of um, having our alpacas, my husband and I um, learned how to shear them <laughs> just a couple <laughs> of years ago. <laughs> so that was kind of interesting. And we, because it's really difficult to find, at least in my area, it's really difficult to find shears that will do camelids and it's because they're they're their fiber is so much different than sheep they don't have lanolin they're much larger you have to stretch them out on a table it's quite a, a process so we did we watched a lot of youtube videos and we had um we had them sheared by other people for the first two years we had them and we just were there and watched and helped and um and then the for the third year we just decided we can do this. We can totally do this. And we just like practiced and, you know, made a, had probably a couple of animals that we just like wasted <laughs> with our fiber, but it was a good learning experience. And now it's just our plan. He did them all last year and he'll do them again this year, which is great. That's so awesome. So you kind of taught yourself and did you buy you know professional shears and like how do you tie the animals down yeah well we the the woman who taught us she was the same woman who I originally bought my alpacas from she had a set of shears that she had a couple of sets of shears actually and one she sold them to us so that's how we received those ones and then um, we kind of share the blades with her so we're getting them all sharpened and then we'll Caleb and I will do her animals as well. Yeah, she taught us, and then she also had the... She, she actually has a pair of clippers and a pair of shears. So we learned on the clippers first because you can't really cut the animal with them. Mm -hmm. um, and But they don't get as close to the skin. So there's you end up wasting the fiber, but it's okay if you're, you know, learning. And also, you know, learning on animals that, have, you know, are older and... Maybe their fiber is not quite as nice, but also they're used to it. So they'll just lie there and be okay with you taking two or three times as long as a professional would, you know? Mm -hmm. So how many do you shear when you do all of them? Um, in a day, we don't like to push it. So we try and do it over two days. We only have 13 now. So we do like half and half essentially. Well, one of ours is a llama. So we do, um, you know, half and half and then one day is the llama included. 
we do have standing. Their llamas are huge, and I don't think anyone ties the llamas. And their llamas are really, if you handle them regularly, no, they, they bond differently to humans. So you can halter and, you know, either hold him, like one of us will hold him, one of us will shear, or you can tie him, and we can both do it. And he will just stand there, and he's fine. The, but the alpaca is what you do it, when you uh, catch them. Uh, you hold them down and then you stretch them out onto a table. And you always have to have people like um, just their job would be to just like watch the animal and keep them calm, as calm as you as they can be. And then Caleb will do the shearing and then I deal with the fiber. And then also I do the nails and the shots and everything like that while they're on the table. That's so cool. I haven't met actually very many farmers who do the shearing themselves. So... I like it, the do-it-yourself mentality. <laughs> <laughs> well, and part of it, part of it too, is it, a lot of the time, if you're in an emergency situation, you need to shear. You need to, like, say if one of your animals was attacked by a dog or something like that, you would need to clean the area and for, you know, getting it sewn up or, or treated or whatever. And part of learning to shear was just in case we were in an emergency where we had to. And I didn't, I wanted to have the equipment and have the, you know, know how to do it if we were ever in a situation where we needed something done immediately. So it was also part of it. So tell me a little bit about your farm. Okay. Well, that, um, actually we board our animals on another farm. So we live in Victoria and the the farm is in Saanich. It's about, it's not very far from, from where we live in town, but it's about a 20 minute drive and it's mainly a berry farm. <laughs> they grow, they go uh, currants and gooseberries. And then we have our alpacas on their property. Has that worked pretty well for you? Oh, it's, it's really, really great. Actually. It's a really, really good situation that we're in with them and they really love the animals and you know, they're really great people. So it's, it makes it very easy. <laughs> That's cool. It is a, it is a goal for us to have, to have our own property and it'll probably be here in, you know, just outside of Victoria, but just with our, our life at the moment, like we have a design studio in town we have a studio and, um, our home is like 15 minute bike ride from our studio. And it's just for, for the time being, this is really working and it's working to have the animals where they are. And so, yeah, we've just kind of been carrying on until, you know, and also property in our area is very, very, very expensive. And I'm, I'm not really sure how the market will do in a couple of years, if it'll stay the same, I'm sure it'll just keep increasing. (laughs) um, (laughs) What about when you were a child? Was fiber something that you were in as a child or did this interest kind of develop later in life? Um, I would say no. My grandparents' farm was mainly a vegetable and cattle and poultry farm and grain. So I never, I never was ever really around sheep or really fiber of any, of any sort. And my, well, my grandmother knit actually, but she knit with acrylic. Yeah. I just never was really drawn to it. And my, my mom is an amazing quilter. So I guess I've, have had people around me that are, that are making things textile based. When I was growing up, my mom used to make a lot of my clothing, like little dresses. Like she was make these beautiful little little girls' dresses, and I have a couple of them still. But as far as uh, knitting and spinning, that was something that 
definitely I just kind of fell into later. Was there someone that introduced you to it? What happened was a couple of, about five years ago or so, my husband and I were in Holland. Uh, just, uh, we have some family there and we're also just on vacation. And we were at a market and Kayla bought me a, this beautiful little needle felted rabbit. He thought it was cute, I guess. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and I love this little bunny. It's so, it's just so simple and so beautiful. And like, like really just, I don't know, like I never really thought about making something with a fiber like that before. And so when I brought it home, I right away went to the, the closest you know, yarn shop and bought some rovings and some needle, like felting needles and started to learn how to needle felt. So that's really where it started is like this and I loved the idea of like being able to work with animals in a way like, you know, growing up riding horses is, is, you know, still a very intimate relationship with an animal and that you're, you know, working together and you create a very strong bond to your horse. And I hadn't had horses for a long time at this point. So to me, it was this kind of discovering this new relationship you can have with, with an animal where you're. Well, it just kind of got wheels turning where I could have a have an animal like this that I could grow and nurture and you know shear and use the fiber and make something with it. Like I still love horses and love riding, but uh, it's just a very very different way to look at and to think about animals and and working together with an animal. Mm-hmm. I like how you just put that because I think it's it's definitely a it's a relationship to kind of get this end result, you know, working with the animal to get the high quality fiber, but also this kind of cooperation between, you know, whether it's shearing or just even their health or lambing or, mm -hmm. um, you know, birth and, and that kind of thing. Yeah. And you really, and I really feel like you get, you get out of it what you put in. And if it's, you know, even if it's just really good hay, for instance, like even just something as basic as that, like even my hay I get, I buy locally from, you know, family owned farm here, but the hay is like, they do um, analysis on it. So, you know, the protein and you know, all the different elements to it mm -hmm. <laughs> and feeding that to, to the animals, their fiber is better. If they have a better feed, then their fiber is better. And it, your alpacas don't need a lot. They don't need a lot of, they're very easy keepers. They don't require grain. Actually, grain can upset their stomach even sometimes. If you, I give it to mine as treats, but just as a treat and not as a supplement. You know, they don't require it like a lot of animals do. They also eat very little, which is so surprising. Coming from having horses, they eat like a fraction of what a horse would eat. So tell me a little bit about how the yarn came to be. You know, you mentioned that you had more fiber than you knew what to do with. And so how did it evolve into the different yarns and the different blends that you've created? I've got a few different ones, I guess. I guess I have the, the Navajo churro yarn. So that one, I don't own the churro sheep, but there is a farm that I will buy wool from. And um, she breeds Navajo churro and has the, like, the nicest churro wool. Usually churro has like a lot of it's called Kemp fiber in it, which is like stiff, prickly, almost more like whiskery kind of texture, <laughs> where hers have very little Kemp and she breeds, you know, for fiber and for meat, but she really does care a lot about the quality. Couldn't believe how soft it was. I, I know. Mean, 
Like it's still a coarse wool, but yeah. <laughs> when you told me, when you, you're like, well, I'm sending you this churro lopi, I was totally expecting something different. And I, it's almost even hard to call it coarse because it is so soft. I, mm-hmm. it's just so surprising. So the, uh, the churro yarn, Navajo churros originally, uh, were originally bred for the fiber. Well, I guess they're probably originally bred for meat and for fiber, but they were brought over by the Spanish and then raised by indigenous people through Mexico in the United States. And pretty much that's it. There are very, there are a few up here, but not very many. Uh, so I just got really interested in the history of it and the history of the animals, the history of even just the, like the uses. And so I, I decided to get rug yarn made from the churro and it's not dehaired. It's all usually what will, what they'll do is they'll take away the guard hair or at least when you're making some mills will do that. They'll take out the guard hair and then, uh, spin just the inner downy layer, which is really soft, but the guard hair is what give it, gives it the strength, the durability and the sheen. So, I had them blend it all together and make rug yarn because I wanted like a very serious, like, you know, something you could, you could weave a rug and it would last your whole life kind of thing. So that's, that's where that came from. And, and also I found that originally I I was interested in the churro wool because it was beautiful for needle felting and you could get these really dense little, uh, sculptures and, yeah, again, like just like the durability and they just last, like it's dense, solid stuff. Mm-hmm. <laughs> again, so I bought way more than what I really needed to make my little needle felted things. <laughs> so <laughs> I ended up, that's, and then so that's why I had the yarn made with the churro. And then I had also how I ended up with more alpaca is that we did a big rescue a couple of, or last winter, actually, we did a We've done a, we've rescued a few, a few animals and that's actually how my herd has grown. I think there were like over 40 animals and six of them were llamas. And then there was even one cashmere goat (laughs) in the, in the mix. So, and in that rescue, I rescued also a lot of fiber and sorted through it. Like so much of it was, um, had been just been eaten by bugs and rats and all sorts of things, but I sorted through it and got all of the beautiful, good stuff that hadn't been touched and, you know, was, you happened to be stored, um, perfectly fine. And I had, I added that to my batch and had my yarn made with some of that and with some of my animals. I felt a lot of different alpaca yarns. And when I got yours that you had sent me, I, again, I was just like astounded by not only the like softness of it, but also and then maybe it has to do with the mule spun, but sometimes alpaca kind of pokes out and it's not yeah. pokey, but it does tend to, I don't know, fray, I guess. And yours is just so smooth. I was amazed. Well, I think that's also to do with the wool content because there's six, 60% wool in my yarn and it's uh, a combination of rambulay, mainly rambulay and targi and Columbia. With their fiber, it's it's more merino type where it's like has a nice, it clings together. Also, I find 100% alpaca spun, like it's kind of sheddy as well because the, the fibers don't cling together like wool does. So I had the, 
the meal blend 60% of like beautiful, you know, Canadian sourced wool and then my alpaca. I think that's why that's why it feels so good. And if you I actually washed some of the yarn just to see how it would open up and it just looks beautiful after it's been washed. It's like blooms. It looks so beautiful. Mm -hmm. I love it. And it's squishy and yeah, it's really nice. I like it too. So is the hundred percent alpaca that you do all from your alpaca? Um, that one is a blend of mine and theirs. That's so great. I think you're going to need to get more. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm, I will be getting more, but of the 100%, I, I probably won't do that one for a little bit, but I do have one that I'm kind of excited about. It's a Surrey. I had a whole lot of, I've got one Surrey alpaca, so it's taken me a few years to collect enough fiber from him uh, to make it worth sending out for a batch. And I'm doing a, a blend of Surrey silk and merino. Mm-hmm. And I'm really, it's going to be like very thin and something for like a, a shawl, like a, or lace, lace knitting or something like that. I'm kind of excited about that one. <laughs> that sounds great. How have you kind of educated yourself about fiber? I would say I have a really great network of, of women that from, even from the, I'm part of the guild here, the hand spinning and weavers guild. There's a, an amazing group of of women there that some of them are farmers some of them used to be farmers I've learned a lot from them and I've borrowed books and feel like I'm always learning another a friend of mine owns Icelandic sheep here man her her fiber is so beautiful where do you see your farm and where do you see hinterland going where do, where do you hope to see it go I have put a lot of thought into that and where I'd like it to go I'd, I'd like to start sourcing other some other varieties of, of yarn some, and work directly with, with farms. A friend of mine or someone who I've worked with a little bit in the past, she has 500 head of Corridale sheep. And I'd like to work with people like her and have and try and keep the yarn or the, the, the fiber and the production all happening within our country. Most of our yarn in Canada is shipped overseas and processed into bedding or who knows what. So my goal would be to try and create a little bit more of a, a space where people can keep their wool here in the country and sell it and make money off of it again, like as, mm -hmm. as you know, as people did in the early days when we still had like tons of mills to choose from. And, um, you know, there's one blanket factory in Prince Edward Island that I'd really like to work with and have blankets made. That's one another project that I've, I've been kind of thinking about. I'm not exactly sure what, what kind of wool. I was thinking maybe the Corridale would be nice blanket yarn, but I'm not, I have, I'm, I'm still thinking about it. And I've got another friend on Pender who has North Country Cheviot sheep. Mm -hmm. And I was also thinking maybe that wool would make really nice blankets. I'm not sure. So I'm still I'm still thinking about where or what wool to use for the for the blankets, what kinds of sheep to use for different kinds of yarns. And to try and create just a, a community of makers where and and an outlet to sell it and an outlet to to kind of uh, communicate and collaborate and, and things like that. So that's kind of my my goal is like this bigger picture kind of, I'm not even sure if it really makes a lot of sense, but because it's still just, you know, broad stroke idea kind of stuff. I'd really, I'd really love to continue doing it for starters and then to, to then to have like a variety of, of product. I love it. I mean, 
I think we have very similar <laughs> goals and, you know, the state of the wool industry in Canada, I'm not a hundred percent sure how, what that is, but I'm sure it's very similar to the U S and the fact that there probably are mo- a lot more mills here to choose from, but the wool industry as a whole has gone very cottage and small and, um, you know, most of the fiber from sheep are thrown away or composted or sent overseas because the cost is just prohibitive for Mm -hmm. the ranchers. You mentioned um, the wool mill in Prince Edward Island is at McCausland's. Yes, yes. So I have some of their blankets I bought years ago and love, 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 love. Aren't they amazing? Yeah, they are. And I just found them really randomly. I think they've gotten a little bit more exposure over the last few years, but you have to like call in your order. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so I remember being like, this is so primitive. Like they don't, they have a website, but it just doesn't really say, you know, but these blankets, they're really awesome. Yeah. And, and you, you'll send them wool and then a year later you'll see blankets. Mm-hmm. So it's a, it's a long, you know, very, very long turnaround. But... Yeah. I was also thinking about uh, a couple of your other episodes and people that you had talked to about natural dyeing, and that's definitely something that... I was just going to ask you about that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, just thinking about how, where that's going to. So it's so exciting to me and reassuring that there are so many people out there that that are doing it and that are interested in it and talking about it. And it's great because it's something that... I feel like for a long time was just like not really there. People, you know, mm-hmm. like when I first learned how to dye, it was with synthetics and which was still really, you know, valuable to learn. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I still think there is a place for synthetic, but with small scale, uh, like what I'm doing with like the you know, very, very small scale yarn production, you can do natural dyed lots and, you know, people are okay with like, you know, buying a couple and, you know, the next lot will be different. Totally different. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So it's, it's pretty cool. And I really like what you're doing with your, uh, your different, yeah, the different dye clubs where you'll buy, um, a couple of skeins and you don't know what you're getting. I love Mm -hmm. that. I think it's so, it's so awesome. Yeah. It's a lot of fun. I, I had been learning from a really good friend of mine and just hearing what she was talking about was like, you know, she used to actually die and sell. And she's like, it would be so hard because people would email me and want more of this one color. And I was like, I can't give you more of that one exact color, but also just this idea of like surprise and you never know exactly what color you're going to get based on the season and whatever plant you're using. My mom, my mom's so cute. She's actually been mordantine everything uh, ahead of time. So oh, great. that it's all ready because I realized last time trying to mordant all the yarn and dye all the yarn and it was freezing. I mean, that's one thing we'll have going for us this season because <laughs> it was so cold and I was, yeah, it was, it was quite the challenge and it was still fun, but this time it'll be all ready to just re-soak and then and then to die so Mm -hmm. it'll be fun so you had mentioned that you have do you have like a dye garden or you've just collected these seeds yeah I do have I'm growing a dye garden we my husband and I just bought our house so we have only been there 
this is our first, we haven't even been there a year. We've been there for like eight months or something or no, six months. So this is my first year in this place and I'm, I'm growing uh, indigo, yarrow, woad and hollyhock wow. for, to start with. Mm-hmm. And, um, but then also just as far as, you know, harvesting from the side of the road, you can get wild carrot and, you know, cedar and like all sorts of, all so sorts much. of things Yeah, <laughs> that are just like right there, <laughs> you know, it's, it would be pointless to grow it because there's so much around. I'm growing a little dye gardens and I, and I'd like to do, you know, some workshops this year. So that's, that's something I'm, I'm looking forward to doing. For this week's Man on the Street, I asked the question, if you could create your own yarn, what would it be? Here's what a few of our Man on the Street team members had to say. Hi, this is Nikki from Asheville, North Carolina. You can find me on Instagram as Woolen Violet and Fern Fiber. If I could create my own yarn right now, I would try spinning a Cormo and cotton blend. I've been dying to spin more Cormo wool, and I think adding a touch of cotton would be nice for the warmer months to come. I would start with a soft and fluffy carded bag of the blended fibers and spin with a long draw to create a woolen yarn. I love knitting and creating garments with the soft and bouncy texture of woolen and a worsted weight sounds perfect. Now in the fall, I think I would trade out the cotton for Angora for my sweet bunnies. It would make the softest and warmest yarn. Hi, this is Jessica from Amory, Wisconsin. You can find me on Instagram at Northern Heritage Farm. If I could create my own yarn, um, which I'm actually in the process of working on this spring, it would be to combine the fiber from my Surrey alpacas and my British soy sheep. I think the luster and fineness of the alpaca fiber will add um, some really nice qualities to the durability and the loft of the soy, and they will complement each other very nicely. Um, We'll see if it works as I envision as I start skirting the fiber and blending it together. But that is my plan for now. Hi, this is Abby from Durham, North Carolina. You can find me on Instagram at Abby Good Knits. Um, my perfect yarn um, would definitely be wool. It would be something really soft and uh, hopefully American-made. It would be something that has a two-ply structure um, to have some great stitch definition because I love um, yarns that just bring out pattern really well. Um, it would probably be either sport weight or DK weight. Um, it's just a great uh, weight to knit with and it's really easy um, to knit fast. And most importantly, it would be um, a hand-dyed, non-superwash yarn. I would love to find more yarns that have some of that hand-painted quality uh, that come from a non-superwash base. So I just think that that would be my perfect yarn. The winner of last week's giveaway is Karen Latucci. You've won the Moon Sprites hat pattern designed by Diana Walla and three skeins of Let Lopi from Tolt Yarn and Wool. Congratulations! The giveaway this week is sponsored by yours truly and my little shop, The Wolfful Mercantile. And I'm giving away three skeins of Hinterland yarn, including two of the Targhee, Columbia, Rambouillet, and Alpaca blend called Ravine, and a skein of the Churro Lopi called Cabin. To enter this giveaway, leave a comment on today's episode's blog post at woeful.com. I wanted to make sure and thank our other sponsor today, Knitterly, a special yarn shop created by Shelley Westcott, based in Petaluma, California. I am always amazed at the well-curated selection of yarns, fibers, and classes Shelley works so hard to provide all us fiber enthusiasts. Make sure to visit when in Petaluma and online at shop.knitterly.net. 
This coming weekend on Saturday, June 6, Knitterly is hosting a workshop by Andrea Mowry of Drea Renee Knits. As a part of the workshop, you'll get to learn from Andrea and you'll also receive the entire Radius Pattern Collection. If you haven't already listened to both Andrea and Shelley in episode 14, you really should. I hope to see you all this Saturday at Knitterly. The biggest of thanks to everyone involved in this week's episode. Alexa, Emily, Hannah Lee, Nikki, Jessica, Abby, and Shelley. I hope you'll join me each week as we talk and learn from more fascinating fiber folk. For podcast notes and transcription, visit woolful.com. If you're interested in being a part of this podcast, including our Man on the Street segment, or as an episode or giveaway sponsor, shoot me an email at hello at woolful.com. Have a wonderful week.